You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another podcast. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode. This one is really exciting, and we can't wait to share it with you guys. And before we get started, we did want to thank NOV for sponsoring this podcast. We love everything about NOV and they've been so great to us since we had David Reed on the podcast a few months ago. And if you haven't heard of NOV, which I'm pretty sure everybody here has, make sure you follow all of their stuff on LinkedIn. They have so much great content. They really showcase a lot of their people. They do a lot of social media. They do lives on LinkedIn, I think a few times a week where there is the Ask Assad show and then as well as with Michael Gaines, the voice of NOV. They also have a podcast called NOV Today. And you guys are just They do so much excellent stuff. I love following everything that you guys do. And I can't wait to find out a little bit more about NOV through your story. So it's great. I'm so glad. Thank you all for including me in this today. And I love NOV too. So I'm excited to kind of talk about my journey here. Yeah, totally. And before I forget, we are talking today with Lindsay Sully. I hope I didn't butcher that. She is a VP of sales for the Western Hemisphere under the Rig Technology Group. What's also great about NOV is they are one of the major partners with PISA. As you all know, it's another sponsor of ours. So that's really great. And what's really great about Lindsay is she has a really amazing story on how she moved up in NOV, going through multiple roles to now being a VP. So we're really excited to have you on and to have our listeners hear, you know, your story and how you got to where you are today. Thanks, y'all. I really appreciate it. And what's cool is that I'm also involved in PISA, and I can only speak highly of that organization. So I'm on one of the committees there. That's great to hear. Well, what we'd really like to do is just start off with having you tell us a little about yourself and how it was life like growing up in Lubbock. Yeah, so I am a West Texas panhandle girl. Life was good. I mean, when I think back on growing up, it was it was fun. It's, it is filled, filled with a lot of great memories. I was involved in a lot of different things. I, I kind of, I did everything. I was involved in academics and sports and music and church stuff. And I really credit to that to my parents because they, they really just encouraged us to be well-rounded and try everything. They also never let us quit. So everything we started, we at least had to finish it for a year, which in the long run has been a very good thing, right? Because I think it's kind of given me that mindset that I can't bow out of things because there were certainly some things that I definitely (laughs) wanted to quit along the way, but, you know, they really kind of encouraged to stick to it. So grew up in Lubbock. I think very early on, what I really fell in love with was basketball. It really became kind of my absolute passion. Probably around the ninth grade, I knew that I definitely wanted to play in college and knew that that was just an incredible level of commitment, but something that I wanted to do. I mean, I I loved it. I loved just going to the gym with no one there, shooting a thousand shots all by myself. Just, I mean, I can't, when I think about my life, I'm like, man, I can't think of anything, you know, from an activity perspective that that I loved kind of more than that, which is fun because now I coach my son, one of my sons. So, Oh, that's uh, cool. Yeah. So yeah so I know I know growing up in Lubbock, it's very much oil and gas, or at least for me, Lubbock represents oil and gas, you know, West Texas. Was there any aspirations to go in oil and gas or was that you did you think you were gonna be far away as possible from this industry? Not at all. So so Lubbock is just it's it's a little bit north of the Permian activity and I had 
great-grandparents that were in the industry, but I, I really didn't have, you know, my parents, my grandparents weren't really in oil and gas. I actually probably hadn't thought about it either way, right? I, I had a I definitely had a positive perspective on the industry, but I didn't know much about it, probably besides gas goes in my tank, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I really kind of landed in the industry a little bit happenstance, but it turned out to be a great thing. I know, too, when we talked last, you mentioned that you went to Washington University in St. Louis. So you definitely went a total different direction than, than, you know, good old boy in Lubbock. So that's not, and that's not a typical recruiting school for oil and gas. So now it kind of makes sense because you really didn't have ambition towards oil and gas just yet. And you went to a university that was more, I think it's more arts. Is that correct? Or what? Yeah, it's, what's interesting is that... Of my freshman class, 800 of the 1,400 students were on a medical path. So it's a big, very well known for medicine. And it is, it is more of a liberal arts school as well. They do have a business school, which is, I was part of that. But yeah, it was, Wash U for me was an awesome experience. I think, you know, I chose Wash U because I wanted to go to a really strong academic school and also play on a really highly competitive basketball team. And that, Washu was like the perfect blend of both of those elements. So, yeah, it it was interesting at Washu. You know, I my interests were kind of in the political realm. I mean, I was kind of a political junkie and followed that. I worked in D.C. one summer as an intern and realized, like, I don't know if I want to do this long term. <laughs> so, I was in the business school and studied political science and Spanish as well, and kind of on this poli sci path and and thankfully that internship happened right after my junior year of college so it was you know it was it was close enough to kind of having to make career decisions that i think i realized you know maybe that wasn't necessarily it, the world was a little bit more disingenuous <laughs> than i had thought right so i was so thankful that i was in the business school because it it gave me a lot of options and it gave me the opportunity to interview with what was National Oil Well at the time. Yeah, so, so talk to us about the interview process, how you found out about National Oil Well at the time. And yeah, because I mean, I feel like you were going through like this whole political science kind of route and all of a sudden you're the VP for like a rig technology group at NOV, <laughs> you know, like 20 years later. <laughs> yeah, it's very crazy. You cannot predict your path. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So National Oil Well, this company headquartered in Houston, coming to Wash U in St. Louis was also very random, you know, not kind of a typical oil and gas recruitment field for them. And the story was really that our CEO at the time had talked to the recruiting team that was running the Next Generation program and said, I really like those kids from the Midwest. You know, I want to I want to bring in some Midwest values and in, into this company and let's try some non-traditional schools for recruiting. So, I think one of the key individuals on the team made the comment, like kind of an offhanded comment like, "Oh, my son has a friend that goes to the school in St. Louis and he's really smart. Let's try that school." <laughs> that was kind of how they ended up at this school, you know, in the, in the Midwest. And it's funny because I'm actually, they came to the Midwest and they got someone who's not from the Midwest. I'm from Texas. Texas. I'm so (laughs) thankful they came because I mean, it was, I could very much tell just meeting the, the team from National Oil Well in those interviews that, I mean, they were cool. I liked them. I felt like they were very relatable 
And I don't think you don't always feel that way in job interviews. You know, I think Mm -hmm. that job interviews can be a little bit sterile and a little bit like formulaic. And I did not have that. The National Oil Well team was like fun and laughing together, but very professional at the same time. It was just like a okay, this is, this is neat. I can, I can definitely see myself here if, if they'll have me, which is another story in itself. So, yeah, no, and I totally think for anyone listening who is in recruiting or wants to recruit, I think what you said is really important. I think sometimes you're right. Interviews can be really boring and just kind of like, I don't know if I kind of want to go work for you or your company. It seems so like cookie cutter and not, not, yeah. But I know what you mean where it's like, it feels like it's more of a conversation and people are down to earth and they're fun. And you're like, I want to go work for someone like you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I always think, cause I've done a lot of interviewing and recruiting, you know, as part of NOV now hiring people from schools and kind of different levels. And I always think if I put myself in their shoes, would I really want to work at this place, right? Based yeah. on the people I'm interacting with. And so I think that helps a lot. Like as, as the recruiter or as the company trying to hire to kind of think like that, you know, is this what I want to work here based on my experience today with this interview? And yeah. Well, I know that when you did your first interview, you ended up actually in a different role, I think, than you priorly thought you were going to do. Can you talk about kind of the process of how you got into NOV and how you ended up, I think you were in like, was it a recruiting or you were helping with investment and, and, and like an ambassador for the company? Yeah. So I was actually, and I've said this before and the people at NOV, I say it too. They're like, stop saying that. But I was actually, re- I was a reject from the program <laughs> that I interviewed from. So they were at the time, uh, National Oil had just started the Next Generation program and they were recruiting people out of out of colleges and a certain number. And so that's what they came to interview for. And so I was really excited and thinking like, okay, that went great. I think they liked me or I think at least half of them liked me. And I got a rejection letter probably a few weeks later. And I remember being really disappointed. You know, I mean, it's, Trust me, I definitely got other rejection letters as well in that process. But I remember thinking like, oh, this is one that I, I really could, could see myself there. And then a few weeks later, I got a call from one of the business lines within the company and they were hiring for a direct position in inside sales and they had saved resumes. And so had kind of a phone interview follow up. And that's how I... so. Right after I graduated, I moved to Houston and started working in an inside sales role. And just, you know, it was neat because I was starting at the time that these new next generation recruits were coming in as well. And so the program manager was was really gracious and she connected me in with them and helped, you know, invited me to a lot of their kind of networking events and, and just training sessions and things like that. So I always kind of felt like I was, I was attached to them, even though I wasn't part of the actual kind of rotational program that had been designed. So that's so cool. Yeah. So you mentioned you went straight from school, you're, you know, studying in political science, all that stuff, not really an oil and gas background. How do you go into a role like sales where now you have to sell oil field equipment and you have no technical background and you know, let, let's be honest, oil feels pretty harsh when it comes to sales in the sense that if you show up and you don't really know what you're selling and you're just a pretty face, it's not going to go very far because they really will earn your respect if you know what you're talking about. So how was that? That's pretty. Uh, 
interesting. No, you're right. It was trial by fire. And I've had definitely a lot of roles, probably most roles here that are trial by fire. So I remember that very first job in inside sales. I had also majored in Spanish. So I was fluent in Spanish, but I, you know, I had never used Spanish on a technical level. Like I had never talked about mud pumps in Spanish, for instance, right? (laughs) So I was also winging in that event. We would get calls you know, you'd be on call in the middle of the night and you would get a call from someone in Venezuela that had a question. And so not only did I have a hurdle to kind of, you know, learn the product, but then also be able to do that in Spanish. And, and I'm sure there were some comical, like Pictionary, you know, (laughs) you're just, just trying to get, just trying to get to a point where I could at least kind of help them out. But no, I mean, I think my journey here all along the way, you really, you really just have to study up and, and kind of keep a mindset of, of continuous learning and, and caring. I think for me, I never want to be the one in the room that's completely clueless, right? And, and I understand, especially in an environment with customers, sometimes you only have one shot. And, you know, so, so from my perspective, I've, I've always done a lot of just trying to be as resourceful as possible and, and talking to people to, to understand our product line and just try to kind of distill things down into some of the key questions, the key things that you need to know about the equipment or the service and and really kind of think through, okay, how does that help solve a challenge? And then how does that help solve a challenge that's important enough for someone to spend some money on? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of complexity, you know, on the NOV side, we have, we have a broad product spectrum and, and we offer a lot throughout the whole supply chain and it's, it's exciting. You also can't be intimidated. You just have to get after it and study and talk to folks. And I think, you know, another kind of thought in there is that you also can never fake it. Right. And so even, even when I don't know something, it does nobody good for me to pretend like I know it, especially Mm -hmm. if you're sitting with a customer. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that people in general in our industry are willing to teach you if you're humble and you know, it's okay. It's okay. And it's fine to come. You don't have to come from a perspective of being the one who knows everything all the time. Like it is a constant journey. I think ultimately it comes down to just being, being humble enough to admit that, but also like get after it, go learn it. Don't expect anyone to spoon feed it to you. Like you have, you have to kind of teach yourself and kind of grab it by the horn. So Yeah, no, I can relate to that. I mean, I've moved through a lot of different product lines and sold a lot of different products. And I guess the one thing that I always hone in on is trying to get to the field and actually see the product being ran. And visually, it helps me understand a little bit more and easier to talk to the customer. And I don't know if that's something that maybe you you did in the process or if you had the ability to. I know NOV has such a large spectrum of products. Did you ever make it out to the field or... I have. Yeah. So I've never been in a field-based role, but I've done, you know, a ton of trips to rigs and shipyards and, you know, with customers and just as many opportunities as I can, I really try and take advantage of it. And you know what I find too, is that sometimes I may think like, gosh, I don't know anything, or I'm, I'm the only person that doesn't know this. And then you start finding like, honestly, most people in here, like there's something new for <laughs> no one knows everybody in here. Yeah. Nobody wants to admit it. Right. And uh-huh. So yeah, yeah. I've never worked in a, in a field-based role, but I just, you know, try to try to get outside of these four walls and learn what I can with the people who do it on a daily basis. So 
No, I mean, that's the best way to do it, especially if you're in sales. You know, there's a, there's a lot of acquisitions going on right now and a lot of mergers. And you are part of the NOV Varco merger, which is a really big deal. What advice do you give people that are going through that now? Like, how did you cope with that merger? Because, you know, it can be a very stressful time. And then and also a time where you question, like, if you're still going to have your job or, or what's going to happen to your position. Yeah, no, it's, that's fair. That's NOV is a compilation of a bunch of different companies. The National Oil Well Varco merger was about a year into my career. So I was early enough at that point, you know, to not really have these like strong alliances. You know, you hear all the stories of like, I was blue and I was red and I was this and this and this, right? So at that point, when that large scale acquisition happened, for me, it was kind of new and fresh and exciting. But over the years, I've, I've seen other large ones come, you know, with NOV. Mm-hmm. And as, as being part of the, the acquiring side, I would say, from my perspective, I personally have just tried to be really warm and embracing to new people because you know that everybody's uneasy. And honestly, it's a neat opportunity to bring in new talent and new ideas, right? And so that has been the coolest part of it. You know, you merge companies and and naturally they have different cultures and different ways of doing things but it's an opportunity and i think as the company acquiring you have to just be you know be empathetic and know that everyone is already kind of feeling uneasy and then i think as the company you know and i think as the individuals coming into something new and different and this is probably true for anything that involves change but you just kind of got to roll with it and embrace it, right? You, mm-hmm. you know, there's so much, <laughs> there's actually probably everything in our lives that's often not really within our control. And so, you know, it's kind of simple advice and maybe easier said than done. But, you know, with, with all the changes happening, you may be worked up for a bit, but don't let it last long. Just get after it and kind of roll with it. Yeah. Totally. So we know you are a mom of two. You're a VP at NOV. You've obviously had a very successful career and that takes a lot of hard work and a lot of sometimes what people considered unbalanced because you're working, you obviously need to work really hard to get to where you are. But so can you tell us a little bit about that work-life balance and mom life and how that, how that was like? How did it look like when you had your first child? How crazy and can you touch upon your husband also in terms of him helping you out? Yeah, so it's a great question. And I'm coming from a place of having spilled coffee on myself today and wearing like wrinkled clothes. So I can tell you it, you know, maybe doesn't always get super easy. But yeah, it it was interesting because when I had my first son almost seven years ago, I remember thinking, I was in my early 30s, and I remember thinking, like, how am I going to have? kids like I love my job and I have a really I have a job where I travel and get to do things internationally and having kids is just going to completely derail this and how am I going to fit all this in right and I have a friend who is the most laid-back person on the planet and I just love and respect her and she her comment was just do it it's fine it'll work out you can work and have kids like it'll all come together and I think she like spoke that truth to me at a really important time and it kind of it was it was it kind of changed my mindset I'm like all right let's you know let's do it and let's let's roll with it and so I remember telling my first boss that I was pregnant and in my mind I built it up to be like this you know big anxiety event and immediately they're going to look at me and think oh my gosh this is going to impact your performance and 
blah, 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 all these things you built up in your head. And he gave me a giant hug. <laughs> like wow. his natural response was like, I'm so happy for you. You guys are going to be awesome parents. Like join the club. Right. And that like, I have found having kids and you know, it, it's almost like another, it's wonderful. And it's almost like another connection point with people that I work with. You know, you always have stories about your kids and Mm -hmm. it's just kind of an easy way to kind of connect with people. And it's all, all of that whole like work and having kids and what are they going to think about my job performance? It all is just kind of naturally worked out. Now it's definitely hard. You know, it's, it's definitely, yeah, it's, it, it's a lot, you know, but I, also, you you mentioned my husband, and he's crucial. Like he is the reason that I can that I am who I am, and I can do what I do at work and at NOV. So we have kind of a you know an interesting setup, and I realize this, not everyone can do this, but he works as a contract audio guy for broadcast sports, and so as a result, his schedule is never super traditional, and he can always kind of control how much he works or doesn't work. And so he mainly stays home with our boys, which is, you know, really allowed me to, to be who I am and to kind of have some extra bandwidth to devote, to devote to work. And so I'm so thankful for him and that because I could not do, (laughs) definitely could not do it without him. So totally. Yes. What's so amazing is every woman that we've talked to that has kids that works in oil and gas or it could be any industry. They always reference how their husband is such a big impact and how they literally are the reason why they are where they are. And I have to say, Macy and I can relate completely just even where we are today. And we don't have kids yet, but having a supportive husband is, is like, that's the only way you can succeed. You can't have somebody that doesn't allow you to, to, you know, follow your passion. So thank you for sharing us and also sharing, you know, those concerns about telling your boss that you're pregnant. I mean, I know that that would be a huge concern of mine. So, oh yeah, I mean, yeah. You, just, you just build it up like it's like you're done. They're gonna think it's a death sentence. Oh. Like, <laughs> no, I think it honestly, like, not only is it a connection point, but it also you really have to be productive, right? You now know that like you can't spend endless hours at the office and as my husband, when he listens to this, he'll probably laugh at me and say, yeah, you, you, you spend a lot of time in the office, right? But you have to, you, you have a family waiting for you and they deserve your all. They deserve for you to be all in when you're, when you're there and with them, right? And so you just have to, you just have to balance it all out and make sure that as, as much as we all love our jobs and our careers and we feel a lot of like purpose with them. Man, family is so much supersedes all of that, right? And that's the most important thing. Would you say that having such a strong career like yourself and your husband kind of staying home with the kids and would you say there's a lot of not backlash, but definitely times where you felt like you weren't like the best mom or giving it your all compared to the moms who like bake cookies all day and like the traditional like stay-at-home mom that sometimes I think like as women we are hard on ourselves and also moms can be hard on other moms right yeah so what was there anything like that and how do you overcome those hey you're always working versus you know I take my kids to soccer every day yeah yeah firstly I think that a lot of different models can work for people right I don't I don't think there's any one right way to do it mm-hmm. I really and maybe I'm just Maybe it's just part of my demeanor, 
but I really haven't felt like I know a lot of people call it mom guilt and I really haven't felt a lot of mom guilt along the way, but that's also because I've been very intentional about honoring, like guarding and protecting the time that I do have with the boys. And so for me, that looks like, you know, outside of work hours, the things we do are family activities, right? And, and it's, it's playing with them. And, and there again, my husband, Adam is awesome. And he, he does take care of a lot of the just kind of like household things and bills and all that stuff that really just frees me up not only to work, but then frees me up when I'm at home to just hang out, you know, and, and just love and spend time with those boys. So yeah, I think that for those who kind of feel that, right, I, I don't know if the world intends to make people feel that way, you know, because I, I have friend, I have lots of friends who stay home and I have lots of friends who work and lots of friends who work half time. And, and I think that, you know, everyone just, has to kind of pick your own path and it's it's maybe I don't know if a stay-at-home mom would ever intend to like make someone feel that way right I think it's more the individual and you know mm-hmm. that kind of feels that way so yeah no I'm, I've just been fortunate and you know leading up to going back to work with my first son in my mind that I mean I remember the December before I went back in January I was had so much anxiety and I was like, how am I going to do this? I can't leave him and he's never going to know me and all this stuff. And it just lifted. The first day I went back, it, it really, it just kind of lifted, you know, and I don't know. I you don't just know make I it work, that. you know, make it work and just um, do it. Yeah, just do it. Just do it. And the funny, this is what's so funny. And I'm like, oh my gosh, NOV is a huge part of our world because we have all these facilities all over town with these NOV logos. And I swear, both of my boys from about two years old onward, would we would drive by and they would say, NOV, NOV. Like, it's like <laughs> NOVs, it's, you know, it's just funny. It makes me laugh, like, how early they kind of detected it. And they've, you know, they came. part they of the family, you know. Yeah. Part of the family. Just uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, with your 16 years so far in your career, how have you seen or what is your perspective on diversity and inclusion in the oil field? Have you seen it change over this time frame and have you seen it change for the better? Yeah, I put a lot of thought into that question over the years, especially because it's been really prevalent, I think, in the discourse in our industry. So, you know, in my experience in energy, I have found that the energy industry is naturally diverse, right? If you think about people from all over the world, cultures, there's definitely no shortage of diversity of thought, right, in the industry. And I think, you know, sometimes I do think that we become hyper-focused on labeling people, you know, and kind of putting them into groups. And then by nature, that then presumes that everybody in this label thinks the same way, you know, and that's, you know, not necessarily fair. So, yeah, I think that what I think is that as as we're exposed to different people filling different types of roles. So let me hit it this way. So in general, we may think of a role and a job role builds has kind of a profile, right? And you think, okay, this person with this skill set fits this role. Well, I think the best thing to change our mind is when you throw someone that's completely out of that description into that role and they succeed and they do great. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you've kind of broken down a perception that that role has 
going forward. And that to me is kind of what starts to change people's thinking, you know, from kind of a who fits what perspective. And to answer that, you know, I had, I was thinking about one of the guys that we hired early days and he was a a history major. Right. And I remember, you know, getting some comments like, okay, you just hired a history major and you've placed him in like an installation and commissioning role. How, you know, how is this going to work out? And then the guy did great, right? And so from from there forward, it starts to kind of change people's perceptions of, of who can excel. So I think over the last 16 years, you know, there was a lot of hiring in 2004 through 2015. There's probably an influx of hiring. And so naturally, we brought in a lot of different people and probably some different perspectives from outside of the industry and like non-traditional oil field people who've just kind of helped maybe break down some barriers that people had in their minds. So, mm-hmm. so I know right now we're going through very difficult times. It's a still a world pandemic going on and what feels like one of the worst downturns that at least I've been in. And I know you, like everybody else, you know, is managing a team that has had to shrink over the last few months. And what's difficult with layoffs and with pandemics is that a lot of times it's not because of performance, it's not because of something that they did, but it's because of just business situations. And even you have to get rid of even some of your best talent. So I know when we spoke last time, you said this is probably one of the hardest jobs that you've had to do. What would you say or what advice do you have for other managers who are in your role who are also not feeling the greatest to having to let go of people they really enjoy working with? Yeah, you're right. It is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And it shouldn't ever be easy. I would really question someone if they ever saw that as an easy process. I think because, as you said, like we've been in a market trough now for multiple years, right? And the teams and the people that we have left are really good and they are really talented. And we've honestly built some friendships, right? And and we've kind of gotten to know each other's families and things like that over the years. So I think my advice, you know, is that at the end of the day, we're all humans, right? We're not robots. So, you know, delivering that news is it's hard and it's awful, but you owe it to people to do it with a lot of grace and empathy and help them feel dignified in it, you know, because they have served their company well and it's absolutely nothing that that they've done wrong. It's just, as you said, just kind of this environment that we're living in, right? And so I think, I don't know, it, it comes back to like, let's not be so sterile and formulaic, right? And the things that we do, let's be humans and let's have an empathetic, like, look at things, you know, and I agree. I think that goes a long way. Like, I think how you lay someone off or how you give people the news, whether you are a robot and just like, here's your paperwork. Thanks. You know, like that Um, just, yeah. Like all in the approach and everybody who has gone laid off or at least in that sort of way, you understand that it's not your fault but at least you walk out of there feeling okay and even like wanting to come back to work for you when things do pick up versus how you end it. We're like, you know, thanks for 10 years. See you later. You know? Yeah. It's sad. It's been hard. It's been a hard thing. But I, I do agree completely. It's in the way that you approach the employee. It's in the way you speak to them and you also credit to them for what they have done. Mm-hmm. And I think that really helps in the overall well-being of the employee and them leaving and their overall feeling of the company because you want to both leave on, on good terms. So, yeah, okay. but 
we really want to thank you for coming on and sharing oh. all this great info, especially the stuff about having your kids and then the diversity inclusion part I thought was great. I have to completely agree. I mean, getting people out of those roles where women do HR and marketing, like putting people in different roles where then broaden the perspective of what we're all capable of doing. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for coming on. And for those listening next year, if OTC does go on and NLV does have their shrimp boil, I highly recommend going. It is amazing. That's like the one thing I always think about when I think of NLV. So thank you for all that you do. And we really appreciate it. Oh, thanks y'all. It was awesome. Thanks for chatting. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.